Hello everyone and welcome to Life of Brian dot 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 Mannix that is the podcast a very special one today my name's Kevin Hillier of course with me is Brian Mannix Thank you very much Kevin great con- to be here contractually obliged to be here um, Elvis obliged. I'm a king baby I'm a king man <laughs> yes. well he's not that Elvis but it's wow what an honour to have this guy on the show it's yeah. um, you know I've been a huge fan of Elvis for since you know back in 1980, and um, to get to talk and meet him, and he really liked my um, antique cupboard. Yeah, so. he talks about that in the intro. Yeah, <laughs> he thought it was a record player, but um, no, nah, it's great. This is a great show, and we probably shouldn't crap on too much because more Elvis, less of me. And and look, we uh, we normally, when we get someone on the show, we talk to him about a whole range of things, but with, with Elvis, we specifically wanted to talk to him about this album, The Boy Named If, because it's so bloody good. I'm, I'm listening to it uh, enormous amounts on my computer and I'm uh, when I'm walking yep. around and doing stuff. Um, it's a really good album. It's only just come out. We've, we've been living with it for a couple of weeks because we had to prepare for the interview, but, geez, there's some good songs on it. And some songs um, could have been written in 1976, or yep. 2016 or, you know, uh, next year. They're just they're bloody brilliant. They're really good. Uh, my favourite is the opening track and I just the idea. Farewell, okay. Song, farewell, okay. Well, let's open the thing by saying farewell. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And But it just sounds like the Beatles in the Cavern Club. I, I'm probably repeating myself. Yeah. Well, we'll get to the interview in just a tick um, and uh, we're going to play four songs off the album as well during the interview. So uh, before we uh, move on, Kev, could I ask you a question? Yes, you can. I've got a few friends that I don't like their driving. I think they're a danger to themselves and to everybody else. Is there anything that I could do to help them become a safer driver and look after themselves, their family? You can address this situation really easy in your case, Brian. Move to Queensland. No. Um, <laughs> or stop being their friend, one of the two. No, uh, uh, very nice uh, segue for me to uh, talk about Murcott's Driving Excellence, uh, our terrific sponsors. Uh, what I wanted to talk about one, uh, today was uh, there's all different levels of drivers. There's, there's young drivers, there's old drivers, there's in-between, there's people who drive, yep. uh, you know, every day for a living, there's people who only drive occasionally. Murcott's cater for all that. They've got all different levels of, uh, of courses that you can take. So yeah. jump on their website and have a look. That's mercotsedu.au. You can book online and you can see what they've got to offer. You can see where you fit into the equation or where someone that you want to, to help out fits into that equation. Uh, defensive driving, advanced driving, uh, you know, helping with driver awareness, all those things that uh, that you need to do to be uh, to be safe on the roads. They'll help well, you with all those things. Well, I know my ex-father-in-law, when he was about 70 or um, – he went and got a, a course because he's, you know, they get old and they sort of oh, get a bit cautious and yep. slow and shit. Yep. And um, he went and got a course to get his confidence back so that he could drive better. Yep. Um, drove a lot faster. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but it was good because, as you said, you know, if you're 18, you probably got to teach you, no, slow down a bit. But if yep. you're 70, it's like, you no, know, speed up a little bit. Yep. Horses for courses. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and uh, Murcott's have got all those programs, so check them out. Give them a buzz, one 555 and have a chat to them. They'll, uh, That'd be one 555 576 Kev. That's the one. Can they get on the internet? 
murdochs.edu.au. We'll do that for you. All right. Simple as. All right. All right. Let's bring on the man himself. Let's uh, have a chat to the one and only Elvis Costello about his uh, brand new album, The Boy Named If. It's a beauty. Hello, Elvis. Hello. Hello, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Am I seeing you or are you just a voice in the the dark? There I am there. Oh, there you are. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for spending some time to have a chat to us. Ah. There's Brian. Oh, yeah. Hey there, Brian. G'day, obviously. How are you? Good, thank you. That's good. I like your radio. Is that a radio behind you? Controller, what is that thing behind you? Is that real? No, that's a, um, it's a uh, old antique cabinet, but I've got, a, I've got a really good radio I can show you, actually. Oh, no, I thought it was, a, I thought it was like an old gramophone or something, you know. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, uh, hey, this is a great album that you've made. It's fantastic. It's, um, thank you. Yeah, it's... Um, it's classic Elvis, and I, I actually think it's probably, you know, one of the best things you've done. I think it's really, really great. Um, Thank when, you. Very, did, very good of you to say that. I mean, I, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't make something, you know, it's hard when you, you know, I don't sen- th- sense a, a competition with records I made a very long time ago. People have had a long time to like those records, so they're bound to feel differently about records that you started with because there was a benefit of surprise. And then all the years that people, some people have thankfully carried those in, in their affections, you know. So to come with a new record that makes people feel that way is is an achievement. I know the band played really, really well in this and I gave them some very clear songs and they were full of energy which they animated beautifully. So... I couldn't have asked for anything more because the circumstances in which we recorded it could have could have allowed us to be feel inhibited and somehow thwarted because we were so far apart. But if anything, it seemed to add to our abandon. You know, nobody nobody plays as if they're holding back. You know, everybody plays full on out. You know. Yeah. Well, I love the first track, um, "Farewell Okay," and. Um, to me, it sounds like it could have been recorded in the um, Cavern Club in about 1963 or something. Well, it's that some other guy rhythm, you know. It's a good, it's a good, well-known rhythm, you know. Yeah. I'd love to hear the, I would have loved. I would love to. In my dream of it, it's Ray Ennis singing it, you know, from the Swinging Blue Jeans. Yeah. So, yeah, Ray just, Ennis from the Swinging Blue Jeans. You don't know that group? Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of Liverpool's other great singers, you know. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. Well, I just thought the guitar sounds in it were mighty. They're like... Yeah, a little dissonant opening chord, yeah. It's, it's oh, bit, yeah, yeah, it's terrific. It's And it's got so much energy and such a great vibe. It's a great way to start the album. It's just, you know, full well, of good energy. to say goodbye when you're saying hello, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it worked for the Beatles, you know. It's like... <laughs> <laughs>
Hey, Elvis, can I ask, are these songs that uh, that you wrote uh, in, in the last 12 months or are they songs that you've, uh, do you have a big notebook I wrote them, of songs? I think I wrote most of them last summer. I might have had a couple of sketches of a couple of them before that, but I hadn't got them really in a form. They weren't completed. They were sometimes just titles or, you know, the notion for a song, but I hadn't really kind of pressed on with the with realising them until, you know, really I had two records that we were already working on. You know, Sebastian, Chris and I since 2018 have made a lot of records together. Uh, he being the, our producer, co-producing, uh, first of all, Look Now, and then I came back from Europe last March where we were forced off the road, you know, by circumstances. <clears throat> but I had been in the studio immediately before that tour in England in Helsinki and Paris and came home with 12 songs <clears throat> to which I added a couple more which became the Hey Clockface record yep. and there was some rock and roll on that record but it was sort of quirky self-accompanied self rock and roll I went to Helsinki with the intention of making a noise I couldn't make anywhere else I, I mean that those were those carefree days when you could just get on a plane and decide you're going to fly to Finland you know um, uh, but I did have a lot of fun doing that and now I've had another kind of fun, which is hearing the imposters take hold of those songs as part of our show, along with the songs from The Boy Named If, because we've already played some of these new songs on stage, you know, even long before the record came out, which is not, is that kind of advantage that you rarely have once your career starts. You know, when I, when, when I first took to the road in 1977, I was supposed to be playing the songs from My Aim Is True, but the Attractions actually played most of the songs from this year's model, which we hadn't even made yet. So it was a very similar sort of feeling that we had this last, you know, uh, run of, tour of dates in, in America, where we were playing, you know, we were opening with something from, like, Big Tears, you know, from 1978 and following it with uh, No Flag, and following right. it that with one of the songs from this record. So... It was good to keep bringing the surprises because it make, brings all the songs into a different resolution. The older songs, you know, come at you differently because of how you've arrived at them. One of the uh, things I found really interesting on, you've got a song called um, What If I Can't Give Anything But Love. And when you see a title like that, you're sort of in your mind, you've got a rough idea where this is going to go. But the rhythm in it, it's got this real tension with the drum. It's tension in the rhythm. And then I thought, yeah, okay, that's really cool because it's kind of reflecting the lyrics rather than the guy being casual about how he's feeling. It's got this tension about how he's feeling because what the drummers are doing, the drums doing. And I just wonder yeah. who's playing the drums. It's and kind of that this swinging sort of, you know, you know, I don't know what kind of music it is. It's some kind of R&B mm. kind of influenced music, you know. I mean, bear in mind that Pete's first... Drumming hero was Mitch Mitchell. That should give you the clue. You know, they're like, he actually went to Mitch's house and, like, Mitch's roadie took him in when Pete was a teenager. You know, he he was he lived in the same town as Mitch, and Mitch was very kind to him. He didn't give him lessons or anything. I think other than lessons in style mm -hmm. and how to drink a vodka and orange in the middle of the day. You know, that that kind of example. <laughs> you know, but uh, and he was never the same again. But um, I definitely. That kind of, um, I think that thing of a rock and roll drummer playing a jazz influenced part is is something that that Mitch Mitchell did really really well. He was obviously had heard Elvin Jones, you know, and uh, a lot of people don't really think about that kind of music as being influential on rock and roll. But of course, 
most of the drummers that played on Motown records and, and most of the drummers in early rock and roll, they came out of jazz. They ju just did historically. They came out of swing bands and jump bands and they had a knowledge of jazz and they had jazz drummers technique. You watch uh, a lot of the drummers uh, from the early 60s, they play, you know, the cross stick, not not back, not the backhand grip on the stick. They play side on like yeah. jazz drums. So just that it, it creates a different kind of attack and a swing. Now Pete plays uh, conventional rock and roll uh, overhand grip, but he still can play in that way. And uh, yeah, definitely the song I wanted to be have some sort of uh, urgency. Yeah, uh, even in the guitar. I mean, I I don't often play. I play mostly like motifs that are part of the arrangement. I'm not, I'm not a great one for like expressive solos, but this is one of the few songs I've ever recorded with sort of an expressive solo where the words run out and the guitar carries on, you know, that, that they're more common in, in blues and things, but I, I don't often play like that. So there are some things we went about the story of the music differently on this record, for sure. Yeah. The, even the way we proceeded in the arrangements, because we did record sequentially uh, you know, often when you have somebody with as much facility as Steve Naive, you tend to let him have his head a lot of the time and lead the way. Here he was sometimes answering things that had already been laid down, and therefore he, he was obliged to be even more ingenious. And I really love the things he plays.
Elvis, uh, where I mean, there's some some pretty dark subject matter in the in the lyrics of these songs. Undoubtedly, but you know the period of time that we're speaking of is anyone time from the the leaving the magical, imaginative, unself consciousness of childhood to the you know the 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 thrill, but also the terror of being a teenager, where you have to simultaneously consider like trigonometry and. Uh, you know, your 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 these unexpected desires and unworthiness that you feel. You know, to the kind of excuses you make when you're 25 or 37, or less, you know, less endearingly when you're older still than that, and you're still saying you don't understand me. I'm, I'm. It's really my other side that made me do this terrible thing. You know, that I try to imagine all these different times and what it meant to be a person, not a man or a woman, really, but just to be a human. Uh, I had more experience of being a boy, you know, uh, than but I you do. But you seem to write quite comfortably from a female perspective in a couple of the songs. I, I did. The, almost the entire record of Look Now was written from a female perspective or, or the experience of a, a woman, how they were. And for that matter, you know, you could say when I heard uh, a Cammy sing the Spanish model version of uh, this year's girl, uh, you know, La Chica Hoy, it reverses the perspective of me at 24 singing about what it was to look at a glamorous pit woman and a poster and how, how true is that, that to her, you know, her real being and what I feel about it. It was really, it was really wonderful to hear that song reversed, you know. So I suppose folk songs often change gender and without any... Um, anything uh, significant about it. Uh, so I've never felt as if that was, that's part of my my uh, understanding of songwriting, that you can do that. And just as a, a crime novelist kills people off willy-nilly and never goes to jail, you know, there, there are no consequences for the imagination of writing songs or the imagining of songs, you might correctly, correctly say. Um, in this, yeah, there's one song where a young woman is... Uh, you know, is smarter than her suitor because she has had more experience of life than he imagines. He thinks he's seducing her, but he, she's already more, unfortunately, more aware of male male desire because of her father, who's obviously a drunkard and and looms up on her in the dark. And she that's has the difference. That's the song. The difference. Yeah. yeah. And that song is uh, is, is has its um, inspiration in a film. A Polish film called uh, Cold War, which uh, I discussed with the producer and the writer, the possibility of it being adapted for the stage. And I wrote these two songs um, t 
to illustrate how that might happen, not as part of a score, but just to say you can take one line from a song and I could make this song out of it. You could take one line from dialogue and you could you could you could imagine a whole other story from it. And maybe that's another way to proceed with adapting something because you expand it. So there was a song on Hey Clockface called I Do, which is which is uh, a, an imagining of the last scene from that film, which is a pact between two lovers. So, you know, sometimes your cues are coming from real life and sometimes they're coming from other art forms. You know, they're coming from films or books or overheard conversations or road signs or... Mm. You know, mottos in crackers, you know, anything can set you going, you know. It's amazing, really. It's like uh, if, you, if you keep note of things and keep track, there's no telling where something quite insignificant. I can look at a page of newsprint and I can see titles in it. It's sort of like, feel like a bit like Russell Crowe in that film about mathematics, you know, what's that film called? A Beautiful Mind. Yeah, Beautiful Mind, yeah. yeah. I see patterns, I see patterns like that. I see things, they, they can almost kind of become hallucinate, hallucinations, you know? I can right. see, I can see sort of three words in a whole page of newsprint and that will, I'll see the title in the middle of that piece. Paint the Red, Rose and Blue um, reminded me of something that um, a bloke I was recording with years and years ago said, and he said, Elvis Costello gets the best vocal sounds and he in particular loved the vocal sound on Every Day I Like the Book, Write the Book and mm. Veronica. And what he liked about it was he said, it sounds like he's in the room singing with you. And you got that vocal sound again, that same thing on Paint the Red Rose Blue. And I'm just wondering what kind of, what do you do to get that sort of, it just sounds like it's dry, but it's probably not, but it just sounds like it, it's got such a presence. Does that make sense? I, I don't like a lot of reverb on, on the voice most of the time. I think it throws the voice sharp a lot of the time. Mm. Um, but uh, I, um, I really, I think I sang it on, maybe on this microphone I'm speaking on, but to be honest, I may, no, I didn't. I sang it on a different microphone because this one was stuck in the piano. <laughs> I mean, this is literally the same microphone. I just lifted up the lid of my wife Steinway and shoved it in the bass end, and that funny rehearsal room sound, piano sound, it's me playing piano on that song. Oh. It's just in our front room. And if you listen, it, you can tell it's not Steve because it's very simple. And, uh, I w you know, I really don't have technique to stray beyond what you hear, but it seemed right for this kind of a, it is closest to a fairy tale of any of the songs on this record, although that is in the, t the subtitle of the, the collection. I think the Red Rose really has the feeling of a fable about it. Mm. Um, I mean, it being a song about somebody who has kind of constantly in, you know, reveled in the darkness, in the darker things, in the, in the theatrical side of sadness and, and, um, almost kind of willed it and then eventually it appears like a great darkness and sorrow appears in the in the life of this couple and it it's shattering and the the, the so you know so the the colors that the song speaks of are not they're not the colors of flags or allegiance they're the colors literally of mood and the color of romance you know the color of blue being associated with with melancholy and the and the color red usually associated with with passion or with romance, you know. So that's what it speaks of that that, that blue covering the the red. Um, 
because they have to learn to trust in something that to endure this this great sorrow whatever it is i mean i'm not mm. speaking of specifics because i think then it leaves no space for the listener's imagination you can see yourself in the tale yeah. like a lot of tale like a lot of fables yep they they have a they have a sort of um a trust in something in goodness or resolution but they don't always give up all their secrets because that's where you see yourself in them you know quite a lot of older fairy tales talk about mortality particularly infant mortality you know because that was a very real thing in the 19th or 17th century whenever these stories were first conceived and the the song the stories of anderson you know of hc uh, anderson many of them if they're read with reference to his life are expressions of great emotional turmoil in him and in his what he saw as his misfit nature he was extremely tall man kind of ugly in appearance had had great unrequited love for one of the most renowned singers of the day a swedish soprano called jenny lind and if you read his stories the most famous ones you know the the snow queen and the red shoes they're very brutal mm. i mean the un redacted the unbattlerized versions of them are extremely brutal and uh really not bedtime reading at all you know because they really about sexual frustration and thwarted uh, unrequited love and thwarted passion and therefore those things are expressed in a fable like way i mean i'm not putting myself on his level but i studied him for a while because i did write a piece based around this relationship he had with lind and lind's business relationship with the showman pt barnum which of course you know there was a film made about this which was just about as much fantasy as my story was you know it was <laughs> fantasy of a different kind you know yeah uh, with Hugh in you know with uh, Hugh Jackman in it was a very good musical but it ha had next to no resemblance to the story of Barnum um why you would work in that way with this material you know you you're creating something for other people to see themselves in yeah Was the youngest of five and the only son he called his wife by a nickname as his father had done not the root not the branch not the flower he had the wildest of dreams but he Easily 
listen to um, Bueno Niff, um, the tension and the drama in that song, I thought this is almost theatrical. I could imagine this being in a really good mu- a good musical. But it's, yeah, there's not many of those. <laughs> no, there's not many of those. <laughs> but I thought um, a boy named If, I, th- I could see it on stage. I thought it was very dramatic and very um, theatrical. Well, I've been working in a musical form for a long time. You know, I wrote a, a stage musical a score with Bert Bacharach, uh, based on Painted From Memory, which was never fully produced. We wrote a second, uh, songs for a second score for an adaptation of Austin Powers, believe it or not, which also never made the stage. Uh, and uh, have, uh, you know, latterly been working on uh, 
adaptation of Bud Schulberg's A Face in the Crowd, for which I wrote 21 songs, wow. uh, which are, you know, they're really um, strong songs. I've performed uh, many of them in concert, and I know they, they communicate. So maybe that form of uh, writing theatrically is become part of um, what I do, yeah. even though they're not as yet on the stage. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, you're trying to dramatize moments. I mean, the boy named F. Idea is, is traveling from where that, the charming invention of a child saying, yeah, you know, I didn't break that, it was my imaginary friend. <laughs> or in my case, you know, my guardian angel is supposedly looking at all those transgressions, you know, and judging and guiding me in some way. <clears throat> which in itself is a very frightening idea to introduce to a child. Um, and at some point you do leave all of that wonder behind for all of these other more, um, these, these impulses and, and imperatives. And then you carry them over sometimes into adult life where that your, your excuses you make for yourself are somewhat less endearing. You know, I, I think that um, the boy named If kind of travels through that transition uh, into uh, a later time, even beyond the scenes described in Mistook Me For A Friend, which is, if you listen to the words, is something that would be familiar from many young men going, you know, to a strange town and feeling like everybody knows them or everybody, you're in love with everybody at once, and but you don't know who your friends are and you don't know what's real and what isn't. It's all just exciting, but you can't explain it. I mean, even when I started to, decided to, imagine the the cover of this record be a storybook there was a certain point when i was asked you know told that there would not be a central object in this release there would not be a record because there was no vinyl to be had at one point recently so i proposed that i actually make a physical storybook as a central object for the release and there is a physical 10 by 10 88 page short storybook yep read that yeah, each short story having the same title as the, uh, as the songs and being illustrated. Well, when I tried to illustrate The Magnificent Hurt, you know, which is obviously, as the title suggests, about a desire so, so strong that it, it actually is a physical pain, a physical, you know, ache, I could only think of describing it as being upside down on a roller coaster and all the money falls out of your pockets and your rings fall <laughs> off your hands. You know, <laughs> you lose all sense of balance, gravity, and allegiance all simultaneously. Yeah. You know, um, so some of these things obviously are humorous, particularly in the illustrate, illustrative part of it. Yeah, you know? it's a terrific package, the whole, the whole thing you put together. Tell me, is, is Penelope Hypeny based on a real person? Sort of loosely, yeah. The, I did have a teacher who it was written in fond memory of, who was not really, I don't think, a very good teacher, but some, but somebody who had stumbled into that profession between other, maybe a career in journalism and a career in espionage, you know. It was like somebody who really seemed to like, a, seemed like a very exciting prospect for a person, for young boys to, to see. But not so much that we had desire for her, so much as she wasn't a middle-aged person covered in chalk, but young, somebody young who seemed to have access to a world that we all were dying to get involved with. She talked about her, I remember she didn't always start the lesson on time. She would tell us about where she had been, like I was at this party or talked about other careers she'd had. 
And I don't know why she was telling us those things unless it was just out of boredom. But of course they were fascinating because they, it was like you were looking through a door into a, a, a world that you didn't know how to enter. You know, and that in itself was very thrilling. I, I just remember this from one spring that I think, I think she only taught one term and then disappeared probably, but, you know, went to work for MI5 or something, I don't know. <laughs> or, or, you know, could have been a bookkeeper. I, I don't know, she might have had a very ordinary job after that, or maybe she went on to be a, you know, very senior academic, I don't know. But I got the impression that, that, that you know, when you're at the age where you can sort of tell you can so you t- you take your teachers at first face value when you're very young and you trust them and you feel secure in their company or in their charge and then as you get a little older you sort of see through to the real person a little bit as you become a teenager you become a little bit more aware that not everybody is doing this with the same level of commitment and uh, that was what we detected because she seemed just utterly distracted all the time yeah and it was fascinating you know so I I think I kind of caught it best I could in the song, making it kind of pretty. That's good. Yeah. It's a great song. I love it. Love it. Thank you. I think we're going to be wound up here. Obviously, you're going to bring this uh, th- this album to Australia, uh, uh, tour it? I certainly hope so. You know, Australia has not gone any closer to New York. You know, it, it's a long ways away and the current circumstances are making forward planning a very, you know, a very tricky thing. Yeah. As I say, we just managed 22 dates. Um. And, you know, uh, there are all sorts of considerations of going out there. Going into Europe is now a different game than it was a little while ago. Um, so we really hope that by the end of the year, things will, will have loosened up and everybody will keep safe and well. And, you know, it's been far too long. I think it's been uh, five years or more since we were there. Well, we'd love to see you here. Thank you so much we for your time. Be it's been, been terrific having a chat. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank a lot. You. Bye now. Bye-bye.
All right, that's uh, that's Elvis Costello and four of the tracks from uh, from the album The Boy Named Jeff. That was the title track, the last one we played. Also in there was uh, Paint the Red Rose Blue, which I know you're very fond of, Brian, as we heard in yes. that uh, interview. What If I Can't Give You Anything But Love and Farewell, okay. But there's a, there's another sort of five or six songs on there that we could easily have played because they're oh, just yeah. really good. Oh, it's great. It's a really great album. And if you're an Elvis Costello fan, it's almost like he's got something from every era of Elvis Costello in there. Yeah. Um, you know, and he's got the imposters playing, which is – And he's singing you know, well. original bit. Oh, he always sings well. He's got a unique voice, but he always gets great vocal sounds, which we talked about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would have liked to have talked about it more, but Elvis just sort of dismissed it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we did we did get a limited amount of time then, but we, we made the most of it, I think, and uh, I hope you enjoyed that. It's, uh, it was a big thrill for us to have a chat to Elvis Costello. All right. Absolutely. It's an equally as big a thrill for us and, and oh. uh, as it is for our friends at Murcott's Driving Excellence to welcome back to the program very good friend of uh, the life of Brian, the one and only Maxie War. Oh, Maxie. LA Kev, LA Manite. Uh, good. Now, listen, before we get into What's the horsehead situation, <laughs> do you have a beer in front of you? Well, mate, there is a prerequisite for any time you talk on the radio, and that's to have a cold mm. one before you talk. If you're going to start talking nonsense, you better have a beer, mate, because otherwise they just right. don't flow on properly, does it? No, but hang no, on a minute, hang on a minute. True professional. Let's have a listen to it. True professional. True professional. Oh. Oh. Jesus. That's nice and cold, mate. It's nice and cold. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So I'm ready to go, mate. Any sort of nonsense you want to talk, I'm into it. Hey, now, well, listen, let me uh, let me ask the first sensible question, probably only sensible question we'll do. Uh, what's happened with the Horsehead gig for the 4th of Feb? Yeah, well, the government uh, put bloody restrictions on the venue, and uh, so, you know, we ended up having to play twice as many shows for half the money sort of thing, So, yeah. and we don't know whether it's going to continue to get worse or get better and stuff. So we uh, – uh, Scott Crawford, who looks after James and uh, Burn Crash and – I think Mark Seymour and stuff. He looks after us and he just made a decision and said, no, I don't think we should do it. Wait till next year. Wait till it blows over. And there's a lot of international acts that are coming through the corner this year. So, I mean, you, you get offered dates, but they just don't sort of work, you know. Yeah, so we just opted to leave it till next year and maybe we'll get a clear run back then, you know. Jeez. Well, at so, least your manager had the foresight to take out insurance, which I don't think... Yeah, that's a good one. Right. So tell us about that. Well, I think that's, that's something that the, the corner is doing because uh, a lot of acts have had to cancel and a lot of them are international or what have you. Because um, Scott looks, Scott Crawford looks after these other bands, he some things happen with them and he goes, well, that worked well. I'll use that with, you know, that will go with horses. So he, he took insurance out against uh, the restrictions or lockdowns and uh, three days after that happened, they restricted the gig. So uh, we just played it by ear for a week uh, and just worked out, is this going to be worth doing? And you, if you don't know that it's going to get worse, then it just it's hard to commit to something like that, you know? We want to put a lot of effort and uh, a bit yeah. of money into the show and put on a good show and, you know, all of a sudden you halve your income or you've got to do twice the shows. And they've already cancelled it, like rescheduled it four times. And to our credit, we've only lost about 20 Hundreds that have uh, decided they want their money back because uh-huh. they don't know when we're playing. But uh, 
the next the date we're doing is the twenty first of January, uh, I think, and then the twenty third, I think. So that's Not next year, though. That's so another now. year now. But yeah. at least you got half. You got half of your money though, because you had yeah, yeah. Money. We end up with half our money. Look, you know. I don't think you can – I don't look, I don't really know where it's, where it's come from. It's got organised, but I think it came from the corner because they've got a lot of acts in the same position. It's nice that you can actually get a little bit of support because you don't really get anything from anywhere, you know? No. Yeah. No. And, of course, the X-Men shows, they've um, been posted. Yeah, is that happening that... in March? No, no, I don't think so. Um, I hope it does, but, um, no, I think that's probably – a year off, I don't know. I don't know what Empire Touring is doing. Um, yeah, that's what I thought, Empire. But uh, he was going to do that show down in Mornington, wasn't he? And then they cancelled that as well. Like, it must be really hard for promoters trying to, you know, to get the industry going. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the artists are the ones that suffer the most, the, the, I think. The interesting thing from a, an outsider's point of view is that everything from a from a Horsehead gig to a Rod Stewart major tour are all being all being affected equally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know at my work, uh, I work at Melbourne Park, and uh, our, the first in, uh, first show going ahead's in March. It's the 11th, 12th, and 13th, and that's midnight all at Rod Laver. Um, but again, I don't know if that's going to go ahead now. Like it's just you know, just because if you can't tell a band that's going to sell out three shows, oh, you've got 50 percent capacity, because they just yeah. go, well, hang on, we're going to do the same show. It costs us the same, and we're going to make yeah. half the money. So and the budget, you know, the budget set for well, we need this PA, this lights. Yeah, you know, like yeah. these bands put on big shows and it costs them a lot of money. Like I know, yeah. just on our small level that we play, we put a we put a bit of money into the corner show. You know, like big light show and production and everything, and uh, you know, it all costs money. Yep. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, what do you do, mate? Get on with it, and uh, hopefully things will get better in the future. Yeah. You know what you got to do, mate. You know what has to happen for people That's to That's right, happy. mate. But pricks, mate, what, what do, do they need to do? What are, I'm going to use pricks get pissed, rather mate. Than, pricks need to get pissed. That's right, um, That's you right know, mate. If you don't let your pricks get pissed, There'll be burning fire car, police cars everywhere. Right. Well, and that's one of the biggest problems with the bloody government, mate, is they don't understand that blokes need to get pissed. They go, well, they need, it. You know, they need a bit of stimulus support so you can get bloody pissed, and it's just not right, mate. If they'd you know? given everybody a slab every week that we had locked out. How happy would everyone be? You know, instead <laughs> they worry about all childcare and all this Education. Yeah, just rubbish. And What's it, the most important they, thing? Well, pricks need to get pissed, mate. Well, that's Otherwise, right. They're not happy. It's just everything goes wrong. It's, um, whoa. You know, the, you know the fucking rule, don't you, mate? When the lager's a bear, mate, the tempers flare. Oh. And that's what happened. Hey? Is that a song off your album, Black Aspirin? Black Aspirin album, yeah. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So, and the other one is No One Left Oh, on. yeah. Tell us about No One Left Behind because it was No so, One Left Behind. So no, I can't tell you about it. You just have to experience it, mate. No soldier left That's behind. No soldier. Just angry electro. <laughs> angry. Rock. Yeah. Mate, it's going to be the greatest thing that ever comes that never sees the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> one thing on the uh, horse head front, there's been a bit of uh, – Bit of word going around about us maybe doing another record, so that's something that could be exciting. I'd oh, like to go back in the studio and do some music. And and what's the record going to be called, Maxie? I don't know, mate. 
Paul said it's dedicating the, the title of their album is based on what somebody said about my loins. That's right. They did. You were and there, I've got to be you honest with you, I, knew, yes. I, was, I didn't say anything about that. They just knew. It just seems to be coming myth and folklore. And there's one, there's one lucky fan, I think, that ended up with a photograph that probably wouldn't want to be seen on the news today. Oh. That was terrible, was it? This because some. I know it wasn't that. Just say you shaved yourself. Girls couldn't get backstage, so they'd send their camera through with the roadies. Say, can you take some photos? Just oh, look at the away. time! It seemed hilarious. But, but then, in the you think the poor woman. Yeah. That was the days when you had to get your photos developed. If they were developed yeah. and gone, look at this. Yeah, I went to see the band, and I got some photos. Can't wait to see them. Dick after dick after dick. Hey, yeah. Maxie, it's been lovely catching up with you, mate. Uh, hope, Good on you, Kev. Hope we get Horsehead back on the road again soon. And uh, yeah, look, well, you know, with a bit of luck, we might uh, we might do something before then. I'm hoping that uh, something will come up. All right, mate. We'll we'll uh, Good get... on you, Mano. Love you, mate. Good on you guys. See you soon. See you, Maxie. Fantastic interview with Maxie War. (laughs) Probably the best interview we've ever done, Kev. Probably the greatest interview. (laughs) He was terrific. He's a great guy. You're going to love him. All right, Brian. Uh, well, I don't know where you go now. You've been in Facebook jail. You've been in Twitter jail. You'll probably now just probably go just to jail. Well, wait a second. (laughs) Because there is a a development. Oh. Uh, But you know how Andrew Bogart has... Oh, the VEC are trying to shut him down, yeah. They sent him a letter and he's got a cease and desist saying his personal opinions about the government or the vaccine or whatever, which is totally opposed to what we went to World War II and World War I for. We fought for freedom of speech and now it's getting shut down. And, you know, we've spoken about the coppers coming around in my joint. Yes, we have. Yeah. Well, the political writer is writing about this and... Somebody rang me up about that, in my opinion. See, I did there. In my opinion, Mm, can't get sued. In my opinion, the Andrews government is um, using the police and the law to enforce um, discipline and a lack of freedom of speech. You know, why can't you bag the government? That's what freedom of speech is. I think they're a dickhead. Yep. But no. So... You shouldn't. Um, be, you shouldn't be able to uh, to threaten violence and and all those things. But if you want to criticise, if I want to criticise your yeah. singing or your album or have an opinion about oh. my radio show or whatever, you're quite entitled to have an opinion on any of that stuff. Uh, th- yeah. There's no problem with that. I don't. I don't believe in people saying, you know, oh, I'm going to come around and shoot you or what, that sort of stuff is no, ridiculous. Although apparently on Twitter you can say, "Hope you die." Um, that's okay, but oh, and also. Okay. Um, there might be something about Marty Sheargold who decided that because he didn't have a joke that he would hang shit on my body after I'd been brutally attacked by a shark. And I just got to say, any comedian that just goes for the physicality of somebody, that's just the lowest form of cheap shot comedy. And um, and I'll sit it before Kevin, I'll say it again. Mm. You know, Marty Sheargold, you're not funny. You apologise for your show, but I could do your show a lot better than you could do mine. You know, sack Marty, hire me. Me and Kev, we'll fix it. <laughs> what would our team be? Oh, Eve would be good. So it'd be you, me, and Eve taking over from Marty Sheargold. That would be a, that would be a terrific uh, on-air combination or a radio combination. I would have thought we've. Uh... I'm tipping we could double his ratings in three months. <laughs> 
Because he's doing his best to trash them. It's not really a big <laughs> art. He's about as popular yeah. as Joe Biden. He doesn't understand. And this yeah. is probably what Marty's problem is. He doesn't understand that pricks need to get pissed. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be the name of our show. Pricks need to get pissed. Welcome to our show. P-N- pricks need to. P-N-T-G-P. No, what about this? It's That's a breakfast right. show, so it's called Pricks are up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on that. Yeah, we may, might need to work on the title. Yeah, I think we should really put it out there and say we're happy to come in and fix it. Do you know Do you know that there are two five o'clocks in the day? Mm, in there, the morning? Yeah, there's one in the morning and, and yeah. if you do breakfast radio, you've got to be up at that one. Well, just not not up. going, not getting ready no, to no. go to bed at that time. Getting out of bed at that time. I can adapt. You know, lunch oh. will become a big thing. You know, a nice lunch. <laughs> lunch should become a big thing. <laughs> and then you, pricks are up. <laughs> hey, thanks to Murcott's Driving Excellence. One uh, 576 Jump on the website and uh, check out uh, everything about Murcott's.edu.au. As we mentioned, you can book online. All different levels, all different programs, all there for you to have a look at. Uh, thank Thanks to Elvis Costello and uh, the people at his record company for letting us, A, talk to him and, Thank B, you. to play uh, those songs on, on the program as well. We really, uh, really liked it. Till the next time, Brian Mannix, you take care in- of yourself and try not to, to, to antagonise the entire universe against you, will you? Look, I think I'm going to be run out of Victoria before I get to, <laughs> to Queensland, but anyway. Uh, all good. Lovely to talk to you, Kev, and um, what a great show this one was. What a beauty. You know who we should try and get? Who? Stop it, I'm tired. It's a good night. Time for smoke out.